you know, I I'm, I think I'm partially wrong, but I still am partially right that when Magnus says like he would have been unhappy, that to me tells me that that I w I was onto something there. So you would have been able to sway him, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Again, I think I think again, you you don't you'll we'll, we'll never know what would have happened because because that that's a hypothetical. But the fact that he said that he would he would not have liked making that decision tells me um, that in, in some way I'm right. Like I might be wrong, but I think I'm still right because he would not have. He would not would not have been happy so all right we're we are rolling we are here with a very special uh, guest episode i think it's episode four or five it doesn't really matter we are here with uh, a man that needs absolutely no introduction hikaru welcome to the show welcome uh, to c squared that's good to be here this is the first time I think I've done a podcast in person, so uh, it's just great, great to be here with you and Fabiano and uh, just stuff that supports the chess community. It's really good for everyone. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. We, we actually just finished the Ultimate Moves. Uh, tell us a bit about that. How is your experience with Ultimate Moves? Yeah, so I mean, I've been coming here to St. Louis for many, many years now. And Ultimate, Ultimate Moves is an event that it's traditionally takes place between Rex and Randy uh, with a lot of the top players. And it's it's always a fun time. I think for the players, it's a good chance to relax when we're competing in the Sinkfield Cup or the Rapid and Blitz or, or 960, whatever it might be. Generally, we're very serious about it. So to be able to relax and just chill and analyze lines and just have fun it's it's always great so i enjoy it and the trash talk is uh, a lot of fun as well fabiano how about yourself did you have a lot of fun yeah it was fun there was some good trash talking and it's nice to relax around people that you normally have to compete with and have to play against and it's usually very serious as hikaru said and now we can just kind of let off steam and the result doesn't matter nobody cares i mean people care a bit because you want to like well gary it. cares gary always <laughs> cares yeah gary is so competitive that's amazing. You know, I think actually that's probably the best part. Even today, it's like when someone makes a bad move, Gary's right there to jump in and ask them why they did it. Like today, Levon, I think at some point in one of the games, he played a move. This rook takes rook d takes a six, I think it was, and and Gary immediately when he was looking at the board on the big screen, he's like, "Who played that move?" And as soon as he found out, then he's like, he's asking Levon immediately. It's like an interrogation, like, "Why did you play rook takes a six? Why didn't you do this?" So it's always fun to see. I see more intense than the last few years. I saw some comments on YouTube, and they were saying you should see Gary in 2015, 2016. He was more much more uh, tense, let's say. Did you feel that way as well, or yeah, did I he mean, relax a little bit? You know, I think at, at some point when Gary started playing again, I guess playing playing 960, playing playing the rapid events, I think he just started chilling out more. Uh, again, as I think, I, I think maybe it was the first time he played 960, but that first year, Fabiano, when you beat him, you, there was some position where you're completely lost in 960, and you, you came back and you beat him. Yeah, and, yeah. And I know, like, he was absolutely furious uh, oh, the, after that game. The most furious I've seen him was against Navarra. I think it was a Rapid and Blitz event. Maybe it was, like, 26. Ah, this one, the Karo Khan. You remember? Yeah. And then he went in the mm. bathroom, and there was, like, <laughs> banging on the, door, on the walls, and you could hear cursing in Russian. But he's, me he's mellowed out a lot. I've noticed that. He's, he's a lot more chill than a few years ago, and I can't imagine, like, when he was like the best player in the world how how intense he was then yeah yeah he was uh he was pretty wild back then now hikaru since uh we have you i i do want to go deep into your life story and how you got into chess and basically how you got where you are today so let's start there how did you get into chess yeah, so my story really starts in California. I was born in Japan uh, to an American mother, a Japanese father. They divorced when I was very little, when I was about one year old, one and a half years old. 
Um, and then my mom moved back to California. I had an older brother as well, and he started playing chess. Uh, he started taking lessons. Uh, it was part of Chess for Juniors, which at the time was a very big uh, scholastic group in, in Southern California. Um, and he just got very good. He was very naturally talented, and he started competing in national events, the elementary nationals, uh, all the way through high school. He actually won the most nationals, I think, of anybody in the history. So it's a very good, very, very good performance. Um, and through that, I ended up going to a lot of tournaments because my brother was playing and, and we went as a family. There was there was no um, father figure in my life at that time. And so we all, all went to these events. And my stepfather, actually, he's been the coach at Hunter, Hunter Elementary for, well, I guess it's 78 now. So a long, long time. Um, yeah, over over 40 years. 40 years, uh, yeah. And, and therefore he's been coaching there it's like you know hunter and dalton if you grew up in new york like fabiano and and i i did actually um hunter and dalton were the two like powerhouses in chess they they were the best by far and so my mother met my stepfather through that because my brother started competing against the best players and they they were from new york at the time um and i just got into the game naturally because of that i i have to say that uh, the 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 moment that I really started though was in California. It was in 1994 at the U.S. Open in Concord. I believe I have the year correct. It was 93 or 94, and I went into Skittles' room and I and there was a guy there and I asked if he wanted to play. Now this this guy, his name is actually Oscar Tan. He's a FIDE master, I believe. I, I think now he's like 2100 or something. But at the time he was like 2250, 2300. And when I played against him, he actually let me win a couple of games. Now, of course, he could have just smashed me, beaten me every game, but he let me win some games. That really started the whole process of my curiosity in the game. And um, I started playing shortly thereafter. But as I've said many times, I was not naturally gifted. And I think I played about like, Maybe it was like five to 10 tournaments when I was seven years old. And I did very poorly. Uh, I, I would lose a lot of games. And my parents stopped me from playing because I just got very, very angry. And already my older brother, he was close to master level. And if you have one, one child who's very good at the game and it's not really coming to me, why would, I, why, why would they want me to pursue it when it's something that's not beneficial? Were you guys playing against each other often? Well, no, because my brother was 2200. He was like, just too good I'm like, at that point. Like seven, 800 maybe. Um, so for six months, I didn't play. And then after that, the first tournament that I played, I believe it was in Newburgh. Um, and I won three games very easily. And then in the fourth game, I, I lost the four move checkmate to this kid. His name was Christopher Belcher. And um, so the fourth game I lost. But that was sort of the start. And I started doing better and better. And it just, I just naturally progressed um, from there to about 1800 in a very short time, I would say maybe like two years or maybe even less than that. Of course, anybody can look it up on, on USCF. Um, and then from there, uh, there, there was this time when I got the Guinness Book of World Records. So mm. at that time, computers were computers and technology were different and people people were reading a lot more. And um, and so I had this copy and I still remember because it, it was this, this dark green version with like yellow print on the cover. And I remember looking in it and I saw there was this record for youngest master. And at the time, that was held by Vinay Bhatt, who I don't know if he actually became a grandmaster, definitely international master. And I saw that. I, and I he's thought, a grandmaster. Yeah, he might, he might have gotten that title um, when all of a sudden done. And I saw that, and and I was like, okay, well, that's that's a great record. Why not go after that? And um, and so I think it was 1997 into 1998 when I played. I think I played something like uh, maybe it was like 700, 800 games. It was something insane over the course of that one year. And that was second most in the U.S., not even close because Jay Bonin, uh, I am from New York, had played a lot more games. Uh, but I got I got to that point. And then, you know, we can 
go from there to, to what happened after that. But that was really, um, that's the first like two and a half, three years of, of how I really got into it. How many years uh, did it take you for you to beat your brother? So yeah, I started when I was seven. I, I think around the time I was 10 years old, I was better than him, which caused a lot of friction in my family because my really? brother, um, from the time he was in kindergarten, so about like five, six years old, until he was 12 years old, he was the highest ranked player in his age category or younger. So he was the number one player in the United States uh, for his age group. And then the person who passed him was me. Mm. So it, it was very short, but it definitely, it was it was difficult. But at the end of the day, I mean, now we're, we're on very good terms and um, there's there's no like friction or anything because of, the, because of what happened with Chas. Did he stop after that point, after you became better than him? Um, sort of, but I think it was also due to the fact that my brother was somebody who was very naturally talented from at many different things. Whatever he gets into, he's very, very good right from the get-go. And chess is one of those things where I think that actually being naturally talented from the start and things coming easily is not good. Because when it comes to easily, when you hit that inevitable wall, which which everybody does at various rating levels, you don't really know how to how to improve from there. You get stuck and if you everything's come easily, how do you how, how do you improve? You're not used to that situation. I think for my brother, because of that, he stalled around 2100, a little bit above that, and he never he never improved. So basically he peaked when he was about 11, 12 years old. And he never improved after that. And I think that's directly because it all came so easily for him. Whereas for me, it didn't. You also mentioned that it was beneficial for you to actually win against the FIDE Master early on. Mm -hmm. um, what was the big motivator for you to continue grinding out hours of study and things of that nature? I think I was just fascinated by the game. I just loved playing it. I mean, it's uh, I loved winning, obviously, but I just I kept wanting to be better and trying to be the best. And that's all there was. I mean, as, as you become like a grandmaster, higher levels, things kind of change a little bit. You, you sort of you're a little bit more objective. But when you're young, it's just like you just want to win. So I wanted to win. I was doing well. And also, I mean, I was able to play a lot on the Internet. That was the early days, like nine, 1998, 99. Uh, the Internet Chess Club, I would just play. I would play all day on, on there and it was really helped a lot do you, do you think that that will to win is like also a result of the, or a product of the american chess scene and playing like you mentioned playing like 700 mm -hmm. 800 games a year and i guess a lot of open tournaments where you have to win games to get any sort of prize do you think like your style was was molded by that by the american chess upbringing that you had Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's like, again, as a kid, you don't think about money or these sorts of things. But when you go to the Marshall Chess Club and you're playing these four rated games every Thursday, I think there's something on Saturday, too. And later on, there was Tuesday as well. When, when you go there and play, it's just like you just want you play to win. That's that's all there is. Like when I was young, I don't I mean, even even back then, I, do, I can't think about like opening lines that led to draws or any of the sort of stuff. You just play to win. You, you play at all costs. You, you just go go for broke. Um, and then, of course, when I was like an IM and GM, and you're playing the open terms as well, like you, you have to win. That's that's all there is to it. Like draws are never good enough. And so that definitely um, there there I can I guess you can say like on some level that's good. On some level that's bad too. I think because when you're not objective, you can definitely start overpressing. And I, I think a good example for me of that was when I played in Linares and Ubeda. So I was still a FIDE master trying to get my IM norms. And there were some games there that I played in where I just completely overpressed trying so hard to win because that's what you're used to doing. Um, so I think there are pluses and minuses, but for me, it, it worked out for sure. And I think later on, like once I got closer to 2700, I sort of adapted the style a bit more to be more solid. I feel like this ambition is, is a generally good quality for a chess player. And like for most good pl top players or even like very strong players, you you they tend to be more ambitious rather than more pessimistic. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to have the will to win. I know like all of us have our different styles, of course, but at the end of the day, I mean, you can see somebody like Vishu who seems like the nicest guy in the world, mm -hmm. but you know, uh, uh, underneath that veneer, like he, he's very, very ambitious, very aggressive. He wants to win every game. And so I think all the top players are the same way. They, they have that will. They, they want to win no matter what. Did you ever play this insanity tournament at the Marshall? Yes, I did actually. Yeah, I, I, I wish that I wish those events would happen again. I remember I played that again. I don't know if that was 98, 99, whatever it was, but I played that. And I, I think by the end of that event, I was like the second to last round. I just fell asleep at the board. <laughs> uh, I remember that very well. Yeah, that was a great event. So just, just for the viewers, like this was an event where they all the rounds would start at bizarre times and they would go into like early morning. They would like begin at like. 8:27 and end at you know 3:30 in the morning or whatever the time was. Well, I think it, I think it started at like I think it started at 7 p.m. and it was it wasn't 24 hours, but I think it started at 7. I think it ended at 12 p.m. I think I think it ended somewhere around noon as I oh, recall. Okay. Something like that. it wasn't a true 24 hours mm -hmm. when I played it, but I think it started at 7 p.m. and then it ended at noon the next day. Is that even illegal? I, wish. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think not. some place they, I think like, I feel like in Texas, they might've done a true insanity where it's like 24 hours. Oh, wow. They might've done the true one, but still, yeah, the, the, those were, uh, those were fun times. I remember that very well. I never played one of those, but because I was a kid when I was, and my dad was like, no, you can't, you can't do this. <laughs> you can't play that one. When did you guys meet the first time? Oh, uh, must've been at the Marshall, like late nineties, right? Uh, probably. I, I don't even know. I mean, I, I remember the game that we played in the um, uh, New York Masters Tuesday yeah. event. Yeah, yeah. The one where you played that queen, queen B6. You played queen takes. Yeah, I remember. So I was white and, and yeah. I lost that game. Yeah. But does anybody that, still have that game? I think it's in database. It's, it's in chess space for sure. Yeah, because yeah, they broadcast those. That was like that was the big event. Um, like 2003, I think it was like 2005. And there, the New York Masters every Tuesday night was like the biggest event you could find. All the Grand Masters played. They had maybe like first prize. I think got close to like five six hundred dollars a couple of times. It was uh yeah, it was it was a great event. And also, this was the return of Gata in like right. 2003, 2004 mm -hmm. around then. Mm -hmm. And I remember like people were talking about the return of this great chess player. I, I didn't know who he was. And, um, and there was like, there's some speculation, like, is it Bobby? <laughs> and uh, okay, it was, I mean, Gata came back and then a few years later he was playing the world championship, which yeah. was one of the most amazing uh, like redemption stories in chess that I can think of. Who are your uh, heroes growing up? Chess, uh, chess heroes. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely be Gary. And I think one of the biggest reasons is because I was very fortunate in 1995. I did go to the world championship match between Kasparov and Anand at the World Trade Center. And originally we were supposed to go to game number nine. Now they drew the first eight games. Anand won that very nice game in, in round nine. And then Gary played that amazing game in the open Spanish in game 10. And um, originally I was supposed to go to game nine. But when I went, went to game 10, it was just... I remember that atmosphere, and I have to say, I don't think I've seen anything quite like it since. They were playing like in this enclosed glass uh, glass room, basically, uh, way up at the top of the World Trade Center. And just seeing the commentary, I mean, I think people like Maurice and Yas were there. Mm -hmm. It was it was amazing. And even into the early 2000s, I remember I'd get up very early, like 8 or 9 a.m., maybe even earlier, uh, to watch this like ridiculously blurry webcam uh, from, from Vicon Zay or from Lenares watching Gary's games. And he was definitely the biggest hero of mine growing up. And you also got to train with him. Tell us a bit I did. about that. Yeah, so now that was much later in 2011. Um, I, I I enjoyed it. I think our styles and our personalities kind of clash a little bit. And um, also, I would say at that time, it was a different place in my life. I wasn't wasn't really sure of where I, where I was going in chess. And so I was a little bit hard-headed at times. Um, 
I learned a lot. I learned, I, th I think the main thing I learned is that Gary, even, even if he can't play at the level he once did, he still has a lot of ideas. He's still very creative and he's, he remains a very, very strong chess player. Whether he could compete with the top, I mean, probably not at this point, but I learned that he could still find a lot of great ideas. And I also learned, you know, a sort of some of the players that he likes, some of the players that he doesn't like either. Did you feel that helped you at all in your assessment and, uh, you know, in clashes, future clashes with those type of players? I think just sort of, knowing their personalities. Yeah, I mean, I think probably more than anyone else, and this isn't very surprising, but I learned a lot about Kramnik from mm. working working with Gary and sort of like what are the lines that he goes for, how he approaches the openings, things of that nature, because um, because Gary's kind of obsessed with him, not not surprisingly, um, and and that that was probably the player that I learned the most about though during the time working with Gary. What were you guys working on? Were you focusing mostly on like middle game, end game, or were you actually looking at opening lines? Was she sharing anything with you? Um, primarily, Without revealing too much. Yeah, obviously. primarily it was openings. I mean, it was openings and then mostly like calculation studies, things of that nature. Those were the things that we were really focusing on. I think, um, you know, obviously Nidorf is something where Gary came with, with a lot of ideas. I think you actually could see it in my play because during that period in 2011, there there were some of these ideas I came up with in this night G4 Nidorf. I had this game against Sergei in uh, Bosnia and Romania. Uh, also in that tournament, I think I had this, I had another idea in, in the um, Bishop G5, Knight BD7 variation against Timur Rajba. There's like this 40 move, just completely booked out draw that I had. So Nidorf was probably the main opening. I mean, that's not, not a surprise to anybody who's, who's listening or watching this, but um, that it was mostly the openings. I, I heard, and you can you probably have more insight on this, but I heard that it's very difficult for two really great players or two very strong players to work together because there's always that that competitive competitiveness between mm -hmm. both players that leads to a clash. And did you feel that when you were with Gary that he was too competitive to to work with? Well, I mean. I like to, to start with probably the first hot take. I have a feeling that you and I, we could probably look at stuff and work together and not have, have any issues. And I, I think that's because we're like, we're peers. We're from the same generation. I mean, not completely, but close enough in age. I feel like with Gary, there's this, uh, Gary, Gary at the time, at least, I mean, now I think I would say Magnus is better and maybe that's a topic for later, but uh, Gary is the, he, he is, was the best player in history. And I always got the sense that Gary thought he was always right, no matter what. Um, and I think it's very hard kind of to deal with that when one person always thinks they're right. Like, I, I think the, the, the younger generation, I, maybe this has something to do with computers too, but like, I think we're much more objective about like, we're, we're all very good, but I don't think it's like one person's right, one person's wrong. That's just not how it is because computers, I think, show us that everybody can have their own opinions and, and be right um, on many different, different positions, opening prep, everything. And I think for me, that was the hardest thing is Gary's just, uh, he, he was always right, no matter what. And were you guys bashing heads at any moment and you were coming with the engine and saying, look, Gary, the engine is saying this and the engines were pretty decent at that point. Right. I mean, I, th I think, again, it's it's hard, though, because for me, when you grow up idolizing someone like that, it's very hard to contradict. It's so very, you're very a bit reluctant. Sort of say say yeah. things and like go against them. Yeah. I mean, it's very tough uh, to do that because, I mean, he, he was my hero growing up. Um, so I think it's it's more more that than anything. I, I feel like, you know, any top player today it would it would be possible sure you might you might clash and butt heads but i i think nowadays we're, we're much more realistic uh, about everything you also mentioned that you didn't really know where you are in your chess career at that point can you elaborate on that a little bit yeah so like 2011 i think i was i'm guessing i'm somewhere around 2740 2750-ish um and I wasn't sure, like, am I am I going to like be 2800, 2850? Am I going to be the world champion or am I going to get stuck there? 
I mean, I was also at that time in 2011, I was what, 20, 23, 24-ish um, or 24, 25-ish. And I wasn't like, I had kind of broken in, but I wasn't sure, is it stable? Is it mm -hmm. not stable? I just, I really didn't know. And I think also for, for just in life in general, the 20s, um, I remember hearing this from, from someone, the 20s are like the most chaotic time in your life. And for me, like there was a lot of stuff going on. Like I was, I had just moved to St. Louis the year before, before that. I considered like quitting chess and I was living up in Canada for a bit and then in the Pacific Northwest. So it was just a time when I wasn't really sure. And I, I looking back in a way, I kind of wish I had been more disciplined hmm. about chess during that during that time period, 2011 specifically, uh, when I was working with Gary. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think everything happens for a reason and everything's worked out. Why were you considering quitting chess? Well, that, that sort of goes into the whole topic of St. Louis. So around 2005, 2006, I had gotten my rating up to about 2650. I had pretty much stalled out there. I was I was not improving. Now, of course, that's very high rating, but in um, the world of chess, unfortunately, it's not good enough to make a living um, if, if you're around there. And so I, I decided to go to college uh, for one semester. I, I basically quit chess. I was just sick of it. I wanted you go? to do something else. I went to Dickinson College. It's Dickinson. in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So I went there because, again, I feel like there's a saying, the grass is always greener on the other side. And when you spend your whole childhood in the chess world, you kind of feel like maybe there's something else out there, there's something better. Um, so I basically quit chess for one semester and I, I went to college. Now, towards the end of that semester, when I was a little bit disgruntled with everything, I went and played a tournament. Um, it was the Thanksgiving tournament. I don't, I, maybe it's called like the Congress or something in Philadelphia. Um, and I had not studied chess. I just went and played there with very minimal studying. Maybe I'd played a couple of PCL events, uh, pro chess league things during that period. But I just went and played there. And in that event, I scored five and a half out of six. I beat uh, Udasin. Uh, anybody in New York <laughs> chess circles knows who he is. Um, and I, I drew Azoria in the, in the last round game where I was very close to winning. And I won that event. And I felt like that was kind of a sign that it was important to come back to chess instead of trying to go on a different path. Um, that's not the only thing, of course, but it, it was it really felt like it, it was worth it. And then once I came back, uh, the results results came pretty quickly. I, I think it was in 2007. I won this tournament in Barcelona. It's this casino event. I played this uh, great game, one of my best ever against Krasankov, the Polish grandmaster, and um, and just kind of went from there. But I just I wasn't sure what was happening. And then in 2009, I heard about the U.S. Championship, uh, which in the previous few years, again, I think people like my blunt takes, had been a bit of a joke. It was held in Oklahoma. I mean, random, random locations, no prestige whatsoever. And then in 2009, I heard about this wealthy, wealthy donor, Rex Singfield, who had started a chess club, was going to be holding the U.S. Championship. And it sounded good. I, I came, played the U.S. Championship. I, I won that event. And um, and from that time on, there were more and more events in St. Louis and sort of the patronage and support for chess. Uh, because of Rex, it's second to none. And I think for a lot of chess players in, in the U.S., it's made it viable to play chess professionally um, as opposed to having to go get a normal job, go to college, whatever it might be. And I think um, I think all of us are, I mean, are, are very grateful to Rex for that. Speaking of the resurgence of chess in the U.S. that started in, in 2009 or, or even a bit before, uh, what do you think about the next generation of chess players? American or, or, or also from other countries, because we're seeing this new generation coming up and, and they're super strong and um, I mean, we saw that in Olympiad, but also right. also in the United States, there's so many good mm -hmm. up and coming players. What do you think about that? 
I think it's I think it's amazing to see again when, when I was when I, when I look at the peers from my generation there, there were a lot of kids who I thought were very talented around I am close to GM who basically stopped playing they they've used chess to get into a good college and and get get a degree and, and go another field and I think when I look at it now and seeing the players seeing like Sevian and Zhang actually Sevian is the one that I would, I would actually talk about the most um there are others as well like when, when I look at Sevian I feel like he's really improved a lot in the last like six months. Now, unfortunately, he hasn't had a lot of tournaments to play. But like when I saw him play in the America's Cup, I thought his result was amazing. Seemed like he had very good prep. When I've played him online in the last year or so, I've, if something feels different, feels like he's playing a lot better. He's just improved. It feels like something clicked where he went from being like 2680-ish to being uh, 27 or above. Um, so I think it's great to see from the Americas to see these kids sticking with it. Again, I think that's directly because of what has happened here in St. Louis, these opportunities to play in events. You see things like the U.S. Junior, the U.S championship and so you're not you're not in the situation where you have to pick right away and someone like Zhang for example I feel like maybe like six seven years ago um, when I was hearing about him I think there it was a legitimate question would he stick with chess or would he go to college and I think a lot of people that I knew in Texas at the time they thought that he was just going to use it to get into a good college and go get a degree and everything else and to see someone like him stick with it it's it's really great to see so for the Americans I mean, I think right now, Seven is the one who has really impressed me the most in recent times. Um, and then if we look outside, uh, all the all the Indians, I mean, they're getting trained by Vichy. They're, I mean, Arjun, like I, I remember playing Arjun, uh, what's it, Gandivam or what, whatever that username is on chess.com. And, you know, he's just this like lowly 25, 30 or something. I remember looking him up and he would always put up a great fight. And I think when I played him, I, I only played three. Like I wouldn't play him with increment. And like I think one of the the marks, uh, at least for me, when I play these kids to see how good they're really going to become, it's not about like if they get flagged in a three zero game, but it's like what is the position towards the end of the game? If they're holding tough the whole game, where it's equal, or I'm only slightly better, but they're not just like cracking, that to me is a sign that they're going to be very very good. And I remember playing Arjun, and he's just incredible. I think Arjun and Gukesh are the two biggest, but. Even the other ones like Pragnananta and Nihal, you, you never know. You never know who's going to make it. I think for sure one of them will get to like 27, 70, 27, 80, like top five-ish. Uh, maybe more will, but I think they're all going to be over 2,700. They're probably all going to get invites and remains to be seen. And then for like elsewhere, I mean, Noterbeck is just is just amazing. I, that's all I really have to say. Somehow his classical was stuck around like 2660, 2670 for the longest time, but it seems like he's finally broken through. He crossed 2700 and just the way he's played against myself and against Magnus, just phenomenal talent. I, I really do think he's going places. We got into this a few weeks ago about the like talented, especially the talented Indian juniors. But I just feel like we're on a train that keeps going faster and faster because like a year ago, I didn't know the name Arjun Aragaisi. And then I and then I play him in Blitz, and he's like incredibly strong, and he he nearly wins this tournament, like this Tal Memorial Blitz tournament, which is like such a strong tournament. And then now I'm thinking like the guy will probably be 2750 plus, like maybe within a matter of months or within a year or something. And it's like amazing that in in the span of one year, where for us like things haven't changed much in in our chess. Mm -hmm. And then for all these kids, it's like they're going from promising to super GM status almost. Yeah, I mean, that's but that's actually something that's changed in the last couple of years. Now, we can talk about, the you know, COVID and the pandemic or not. But certainly it is true that if I look back like five, six years, it seemed like there were like one or two juniors who, who would break through, who would look really promising. And you felt like they would become the top 10. But now there are like so many of them, they're probably like 10, 10 or more who are right around 2700 or even above that. So 
I think it's only going to get faster. And I think um, you're going to just see kids getting better at younger and younger ages. I think the technology, the ability to eat up all that information, it's, they can do it in a way that we can't. I guess that's the question. What's the biggest factor that's uh, drilling this uh, huge improvement? Is it the training with Vichy? Is it uh, just the speed at which information travels? Is it having so many databases and being able to analyze games at incredible speeds with the engines as well, with the emergence of new engines as well? Which one is the biggest factor? I mean, I think it's, it's all of them. I think if I had to pick a factor, I think one of the things is probably that they're not so stuck in their approach the way that we are. Because mm -hmm. again, well, even when I think about myself, like, yes, I kind of grew up with computers. I mean, I grew up with things like Fritz 4 and all, all these, these very basic engines. But um, the, the younger kids are growing up with it from the very start. And I think the way that they analyze and look at positions is just completely different. Um, you know, I think Gary said this too. It's uh, in his great predecessor. He said something along the lines of at a certain point, like the world champs, they all calcified. So basically they got really stuck. They couldn't like adapt to the times and keep improving with what, what was changing. And I think that's the biggest thing that's driving it is the way that the way the young kids are analyzing with engines. I heard that term uh, calcified when Nigel was writing about how he beat uh, Karpov in their candidates match to qualify for, against mm -hmm. against Gary. And he used the term calcified for because Karpov, it was like late 90s, Karpov was, or mid 90s, Karpov was still super, super strong. Right. But he felt like he wasn't at that point where he was going to change his play. And mm -hmm. he was just stuck in his approach. And uh, and that's why he said he won the match. But so you've seen you've seen all sides of this you know you grow up grew up when computers were really weak and now, now you see them when they're super strong and you're and you're still playing at the top level while they're like dominating the game do you feel like your chess has changed with the advent of super strong modern engines um you know that's interesting i i think uh <laughs> i feel like it has changed over the years but at the same time i also feel like in some ways i have calcified too like you you will notice and I mean, this this is partially why I'm, I, I am a streamer as well, I will say, is that um, like there are certain openings that I just play now. Like I play the Berlin and, you know, you, you try, I think, at various periods. Like when I was around 2700, I played every opening on the sun. I did not understand every opening all that well. It's like you, I would actually do a lot of memorization, like Karo Khan, for example, playing the Berlin, playing various suns, Nidorf, Dragon, whatever it might be. And it's just like, but before the game, I would just like, review it for like five hours, just like memorization, memorization, memorization nonstop. Now, as I've gotten older, I can't do that. So I remember when I played the 2009 US Championship, uh, the this final round against Josh Friedel, which was in this, uh, I think I think you call it like the, uh, what's it? It's like declined, it was, I tried to go into the fried, li fried liver. It was this knight a5, bishop b5, bishop d3, which at the time wasn't super known. But before that game, literally what was happening in the like two hours before that game was I, would, I was talking to Chris who was here with me and it was like, I'd be like, okay, bishop d3, you know, knight d5, all, all these lines just going out like 10 moves. In my mind, I was like, I had a board, and I'm just like repeating these lines out loud. Now, of course, I don't do that at all. Um, in fact, I look at a lot less lines. I try to more or less pick what I think my opponents are gonna play for the most part. Um, so, so it has changed. And then generally also with engines, um, I feel like a lot of stuff that I, I used to believe was playable, I just don't. Like, you know, the Nidorf, I, I used to love it. Um, and there was a period, or I think it was like 2016, 2017. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, but I was, I tried to play the Nidorf against Fabiano actually, and I think I lost something like four games in a row. And I think every single one of them was some kind of, some kind of prep. Um, and it's like that also kind of when that happens, you you lose faith. It's just like okay, I'm just going to play one opening, and that's that. You you just don't want to gamble anywhere else. So it definitely has changed over the years. Um, 
because of engines in terms of how I how how I look at it. Like I think I'm much more pessimistic about trying to be creative than I was when I was younger. But also when you look at the younger generation, then I think they're they're very wildly optimistic. Uh, they're not pessimistic. They haven't had these experiences of like just losing end games to Magnus or losing in opening prep to Fabiano, all these different things. So do you feel they're more fluid in their approach when it comes to openings, for example, just being able to jump from one opening to the other nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. I think the I think uh, for sure that's true. Again, I mean, I think a lot of his experience, and maybe you'll see them go and start playing one or two openings as opposed to playing everything. But I think that optimism is very, very important if you're you're trying to get to the top. I heard Vichy had a similar t approach to what you mentioned, which was like the emotional aspect of like you lose a game and and then you don't want to play the opening anymore. And he um, he was playing Topolov, and the first game he plays the. The Grunfeld, okay. and he gets crushed. It has nothing to do with the opening. The opening is fine, but he just scraps the entire Grunfeld for the match, which was like his main opening preparation. And and you mentioned like negative emotions affecting. And I can understand how how that would be. That even though you know something's good, you just don't feel like it. You just don't feel like you want to be in that position again. Right. I mean, on the other hand, though, there are other people like MVL, for example, we talk about the Nidorf, and he, I mean, he he doesn't care. He he might get bad positions every game, but he's just going to keep playing it. Like, I mean, I, I feel like he's just some kind of masochist or something <laughs> because he just, every time he just does it, gets a bad position. I mean, yes, he loses his fair share. I mean, he wins some. Uh, some of those games are draws, but I, I mean, that game against Lev, for example, in Singfield Cup, it's just like, I, I just don't know how you can continue to want to play play the Nidorf after a game like that because it's like, even if you had found some some right moves and, and, and equalize it's still like he's still still an end game and is when you play those openings like the night or for the king's indian specifically you're looking for the fight you want the fight but there are all these different ways that you can just play for like this very small advantage and then if your opponent plays the best moves like yeah it's 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 okay but you're if you don't you're just suffering and loss and you like i like when i was younger i played the king's indian I didn't mind losing games in the King's Indian. But then when your opponent plays something like, you know, G3 systems or Gligorich or any any number of these systems, you're just like, okay, but where's the fun? Where's the fun mm -hmm. in it? Because you, you're you're ready for the fight. Like, you, it's okay if you lose as long as there's a fight. But then when you just, like, you have to play against some quiet positional line, you're just like, ugh, it's just so frustrating. But on the other side of that, like the the King's Indian specifically, you won so many nice games. I remember against Vichy, mm -hmm. against Gelfand, like all these sacrificial games you broke through on the King's side. Like, do those positive emotions make, did it ever make you feel like I need to stick with this opening, even though it's a bit dubious? Well, at the time, everybody was ready for the fight, too. People wanted to, people wanted the fight. Like, that's, that's how chess was played. Like, if you, if you look at the Nidorf and you look at Gary when he was playing in the 90s, like, everyone would play these very, these very sharp lines. Like, that was the style of play. Nowadays, and I think this also has something to do with Magnus as well, everyone's looking for, like, this quiet, slightly, slightly better position as opposed to the very sharp lines for the most part. And and I think that I have those positive emotions, but when, when people started sort of figuring out things like the bayonet and then even just playing these G3 systems, it's just, it, you sort of lose, it, it loses its uh, appeal, is how I'd put it, because you just, you, you don't want to play these slightly worse positions. Like, you want that fight. It's like there was a period when I was playing the Dutch, for example, and... Uh, I, I, I had these very sharp lines in Leningrad. I think Kramnik was one of the players I played against the most. And it's really fun when you get these sharp, dynamic positions. But then when they play these like, very quiet lines, like D5, like let's just say you play a C6 line, D5, D5 takes, takes. And at some point they go some knight G5 and they trade off the knight for the bishop and they play E3. And you, you just sit around for the next like 20 moves. And yeah, it's completely fine to play, but it's not what you want. Um, so 
I had those positive emotions about the King's Indian, and I, I used to have those about the Night Orc, but you, you ruined it, Fabi. <laughs> Sorry your about fault. that. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you, you beat me in a bunch of games before that, and at some point I was sure. like having my worst record against the Night Orc mm -hmm. because you beat me in Moscow and in Zurich and mm -hmm. probably somewhere else as well. And then I got some revenge later. Yeah. So there was there was like a mixed bag there. Well, I mean, to your credit also, yeah, that was the opening that everybody went into because you had a bad score yeah, against yeah. it at the time. So I mean you worked you worked it out and that makes sense. But you created yeah. a monster, yeah. This guy uh, his last two wins came in the All night my wins are in the night room. That's it. He's winning <laughs> in the night room. Well, I mean, That's actually if you look at my Canada's tournament, my, my winning I beat Ali Reza and um I think there was one other game, right? Or am I crazy? Is there one other game in the night or was it just no, there's one other game against Duda. Yeah, yeah, I beat Duda. Mm -hmm. I beat Duda yeah. and, and Ali Reza. So two of my wins were in the Night Orf as well. So, um, yeah, it's just you have those positive emotions. But I think at some point it, it, it's the spirit of the sort of position you want out of that opening. If you, if you never get it anymore, it's like it's it's really, really hard to to do it. Um, you can do it here or there, I think. But it's it's too much. And even Ali Reza, for example, in the Kansas, his biggest mistake was that he tried to play the Nidorf. He played the Nidorf, I think, because his, his approach was he wanted to be very aggressive, try to win every game with both colors. And then, of course, when people are playing these silly lines like, you know, A4 or H3 or there, there's so many of these silly lines or E5, these lines with E5, Knight, F3 that are just dry as dry as paint. Um, it, it's just like you're not getting what you want. And so I, th I think if you're if you're playing it just because you you want to have a game, that's one thing. But if you're playing it because you want the dynamic positions, and your opponents realize this and they just don't do that, I think it's just it, it saps saps all your motivation for sure. Let's speak about the candidates. Actually, how did you? Um, well, at least when did you feel that you're ready for the candidates? When did you feel like you actually have a clear chance, a clear shot at potentially making it to the candidates? Because you were streaming a lot as well. So obviously you weren't spending eight, nine hours uh, a day preparing for the candidates or for the mm -hmm. Grand Prix and whatnot right. in preparation for the candidates. When did you feel you're getting that chance to actually make it? To the I think after the first Grand Prix, I, I felt like I had a chance. I mean, this is also probably a bit of a hot take, but I think one of the big differences uh, is it, with the pandemic is I felt, felt like younger players got much more serious about chess. Mm -hmm. It didn't like really change anything for them. I felt like a lot of the older players, they became lazy and they actually stopped studying chess as much. So I think that that is one thing that changed. And I, I think I got I got very lucky in the uh, first Grand Prix because the group I was put in, it had two players who were older. Now, Grishuk, obviously very, very strong player. Um, but again, someone who's a little bit older, Bakro, another player who's older. And and Asipenko was the, the last player. Now, he is a junior on the rise. Uh, but because of the group that I was in, I think I, I think I got lucky with that seating. And once I once I won that first uh, first Grand Prix, I knew that I had a chance. Although the second Grand Prix, pretty much the worst thing possible mm -hmm. happened because Rapport Rapport won, and I think Anish was another player who did well. I think there were two players that I didn't want to do well in that event, and they did very well. So it definitely wasn't wasn't guaranteed. But after the first one, I knew I had a chance, um, and I think. I, I think actually, if you're asked for like the exact moment, I knew that that I think it was going to happen. It's when I beat Lev in the third and final Grand Prix with the white pieces in the fourth game, because that one I lost the very first game to Lev, and so it started off very very poorly. Um, but that I think also has a lot to do with the fact that being a streamer and things kind of changing, there wasn't the same pressure. I think I think all of the results that I had uh, post pandemic would not have been possible in a pre pandemic world because. 
I put too much pressure on myself and I ha had too many nerves. So when, none of that would have happened otherwise. When did you get serious about streaming? Was it around 2018? Because I remember we were doing this camp for the candidates and we were actually watching you. And I think you were just at the beginning uh, starting to stream, but it was already, it felt like there's something there. Is that when you felt like? So, I mean, I can actually career? pinpoint it very, I mean, I can't pinpoint the exact day, days of the, or the timeline of what, what happened, but uh, it was in October of 2018. So I don't, no, no, you, you were already like playing the match by that point. No, no, there was no, we were watching sometimes in January. No, 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 no. January of when, 2018? 2018, yeah. Okay. That might have been, for, that would have been for fun. So like the, the origins of when it became like serious, uh, is, it's October, 2018. Um, and I played this tournament in the Isle of Man. Now, again, I don't remember the exact date order of, of like of how it happened, but at some point during the tournament, I had a dinner with Danny Wrench, the uh, let's see, chief chess officer <laughs> over at chess.com. Um, and during that dinner, he basically gave me his pitch to that I should start streaming, that it's something, you know, it'll be fun, you'll enjoy it, and, and this or that. Now, I don't remember if that happened for first or if I lost this game to Nightage first. Um, so I don't remember the exact order of it, but basically, when I lost this game tonight, it would have been, I think, round, it was the second to last round, so I don't remember if it was round eight or round nine um, of this Isle of Man tournament. I lost this horrible game in one of these G6 Spanishes tonight with the black pieces. At some point, I think I was actually winning that game or, or much better, but I couldn't quite work it out. Got into time pressure, didn't go my way. Um, and at the, after that game, I felt very, very despondent, and I sort of wanted to chart a new path. And after that, after that tournament, I came home. It was around the time of the World Championship, um, and I just started streaming casually every day. I just got into it, um, and it's just something fun to do, something different, still feature chess, but something completely different as opposed to playing. And during that time, the World Championship, of course, happened between Fabiano and Magnus, and at that time, there were some streamers who started getting into chess, streamers like Forsen, Reckful, XQC, very specifically. And so there's this little bit of a boom. Um, now, again, it's all, all, all relative because compared to what happened during the pandemic, it's, it's not comparable. Um, but I, I did start getting more viewers and I started growing into that role. When I first was streaming the earliest streams in, in middle of 2017, it wasn't something that I was used to. I think as a chess player, uh, we're, we're not used to being in front of people. We're used to like much more sort of a television way where you do interviews with a reporter, one person, no direct communication with an audience. And so it didn't come naturally to me, but as I started doing it more and more in late 2018 and into 2019, I just started enjoying it. I, I wasn't doing it for money, any any of these other things. There's just something I enjoyed. And I didn't have a lot of tournaments during that period of time. So when I had free time, I just did it. And um, I enjoyed it and I just kept with it. I kept going. So you carving a new path for yourself wasn't motivated by money. No, it was a financial. It had, had nothing to do with money. I mean, I've said this before, like chess.com gave me some minimal money to stream, but I just, I did it because I thought it was something fun to do. Um, and, you know, I think in streaming, again, this is part of a bigger conversation, but I think when you look at streaming, one of the biggest mistakes I think that people, and this can apply to chess or, or other fields, and this also I can think can apply to like YouTube as well, is that people have to realize that when you get into it, one of the most important things is being genuine. If you're doing it just because you see a way to make money or, or get rich or whatever it might be, the audience will see through that. And, and so I think that's why it's, it's very tough as a lot of people now, it doesn't matter what age you are, they, they see these influencers who have tremendous success and they're like, okay, well, it's such an easy path, make some videos, do some streaming, whatever, you'll, you'll become rich and famous very easily. Not understanding that all these people, when they started out, that was not their motivation. They did it because it was something different, something they wanted to try out, make content, whatever it might be, and then the success followed. 
but they didn't do it with that as their primary motivation. Um, so I think uh, for me, yeah, I just, I did it. And then 2019 was not a good year either for me uh, in terms of over the board chess. I had some poor results. I didn't do, actually no, 2019, no, actually I did well in the US Championship, but I did terribly in just about every other major event like Grand Chester in Croatia, horrible event, um, World Cup, which was one of, those, one of the last events I played prior to, the, actually one of the last events I played prior to the Grand Prix, did terribly, lost in the second round in the Cipianu. Um, like I didn't have a good year other than the US Championship. And I, I think because of that, I just stuck with it. I kept doing it. Um, and it, it's because it gave me joy. Chess was not really bringing me joy when I played the top events. And um, and then 2020, I mean, it was just kind of kind of wild in terms of what happened in the world. How do you deal with trolls online? How do you deal with bad comments online? How do you deal with people that are saying, you're not a chess player anymore, you're a streamer nowadays? How do you deal with that? You know, I think it's it all, every, it's like I said this before, but I think everything kind of happens for a reason. And I, I remember when um, when I was younger, this is, this is not really uh, any secret, I wasn't really the nicest person. Um, and I, I tended to really say nasty things, get under people's skin, all these different things. And I think because of that experience at the time, I had this sort of me against the world approach. And I really used that to fuel me. Like the, the fact that I wasn't liked, it felt like it's me against everybody else. That was my motivation. That was my fire. And so in some way, like I'm, I'm older now, obviously things are very different, but I still can, I can still use that and channel that um, to give me motivation. I have to say, I mean, of course, everybody's familiar with this, but I have to give a huge shout out to our chess because every time that I every like before these like Grand Prix events when they were like saying, OK, he's going to do terribly. I'll, I think someone said they were going to like eat a chessboard or something <laughs> if, if I qualify like that. I was still able to some degree to channel that. And then like when I'm actually streaming, like mostly it's in good fun, but I, I'm used to it. And so I just use that as like sort of motivation fire. I, I always have that. That sort of echoes like how I feel. Fisher viewed things when he was, because it, it was him against the world. Was that like one of your inspirations when you were growing up because there was that American connection? He was such a huge figure in American chess. I mean, I don't think it was that specifically. Um, it's just, it's just how I was kind of. But the, the problem with that is that like when you're younger and that's what gives you the motivation, then as you get older and you sort of mellow out a lot, it's very hard because you kind of don't want, like, as I'm getting older, like you want to be like around your peers, you want to be respected, you want to interact with them. And so you kind of want it the other way after having had it the exact opposite for, for like the first like 10, 15 years of my career. So it, it cuts both ways. But you're also pursuing those type of feelings, right? And those type of drives that got you there. What, what do you mean? How exactly? Based on the, you know, bad comments and everything, you know that that's going to drive you to actually pursue excellence, right? Kind of. But again, as you get older, sometimes you just like you don't you don't you don't you don't want that kind of because you, you change, you, you mellow out, you become a different person over time. Sure, you're but, a better. But yes, but, but still, I still have that in me. It's still in my You DNA. miss that it, a I little can, bit. I yeah? can. Yeah, I can use it. Um, so I, I do, I do, I do still use that from time to time. But again, I think when you're when you're online, it, you do realize there are a lot of people who will say those comments, um, and they are trying to get a rise out of you. It's one of the hardest things I think to deal with being a streamer is not letting it get to you when you see a lot of those sorts of comments. But I just sort of assume that at the end of the day, uh, the majority of fans who are watching are not like that. I, I can obviously tell that very clearly. And and so I, I brush it off for the most part. There are times that I can't brush it off. Obviously, you stream for a long time, you get annoyed, various this or that. Sometimes you sometimes, you know, you, you can't ignore it. But for the most part, I, I look at this. I sort of look at the viewers. I look at the positive comments. And overall, there are a lot more of those.
I've done some streaming myself as well, and the consistency for me is the hardest part. And also, it gets to a point at times where I just feel burned out. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel burned out at all? And when was yeah. the last time? You know, I think there are, there are many different stages of it. I think um, I think at the start, it's always going to feel like a lot of fun. It's something very new, something very different. Um, and at some point, everyone encounters burnout. Now, for me, one of the things that's the most difficult is that there was this tremendous chess boom in 2020. So it's like every day in 2020, I remember waking up and streaming like eight, nine hours. There was this nonstop wave of like higher numbers, higher higher income, whatever whatever it is. It was like everything was trending up nonstop. Every single day, there was some new, some new thing that happened that was phenomenal that never happened before. And after that, uh, I definitely felt a little bit of burnout for sure into 2021. But at the end of the day, it's still there. Still are those fans who come back. And when I look at the fans, um, and you look at you look at how many of them write those positive messages in the back of my mind, I know that I'm doing something that people enjoy. And that's sort of how I deal with it. It's just like I'm able to, I'm able to internalize that I'm doing something that a lot of people enjoy. It gives them it gives them happiness. Um, and so, I mean, maybe I'm unique in that regard that I'm able to just sort of look at it that way, but that's really what drives me more than anything at this point is it's the fans who, who have been coming every day for years and years. And, you know, it's like you, you helped me during this very rough time, whether it was a divorce or somebody dying or all these different life circumstances changing. Um, that's, that's really what, what gives me the motivation to keep going. Richard mentioned that in 2020, while everyone was sort of not sure what to do with their chess career that you were super active and playing all these events, online events. And it's not like the traditional way of training chess, but he thought that it helped you keep your chess sharp. Do you feel like that was the case? Well, you know what's really funny about the whole thing is that at the end of 2019, uh, I played a tournament Tata Steel in India. I believe I won that event. But I decided not to play Gibraltar, which I, I think I've won like four or five times. I, I always play. I play that or like I play something in January. And I usually there's something like in March, maybe it was Zurich or, or something like that. Um, but I decided at the end of 2019, like I was not going to play for five months. I decided like the results aren't good. I'm a little bit burned out. I'm not going to play for five months. And then like come like March, Aprilish, I'm going to study for like three, four weeks, get ready for the U.S. championship. So I actually wanted to get like back into over the board chess. And then of course everything changed. I think, um, again, I think it comes back to what I said earlier. I think all the junior players were very, they, they were used to studying it. It helped only helped them. I think for the older players, they became like, I, I think they became lazy or took time off. Like, again, I've said this, I don't know like what happened to you, but like when the Candace was postponed it for that first month, it had to have been like very, very strange. It's like tournaments postponed. What am I doing though? I, am I studying, but I don't know when it's happening. All these different things, I think the, all these different emotions must have been, been going through your head. And I think for, for people who are like uh, who, who weren't in the candidates and even just like you look at other top gems are like expecting a tournament in April or May. It's like, wait, what's happening? So I think everybody for those first like two to three months, probably just like they were sitting in bed or or whatever is watching Netflix, uh, doing all these things they couldn't do before. And I think for me that being able to play was, was absolutely huge. And now, of course, I think there isn't that gap anymore. But I think when I look at the Grand Prix. I think all those guys like Bacro, Grishuk, even Asipenko, I was much more sort of battle ready. I was ready for the competitions in a way that they weren't. I think almost everybody wasn't really ready for. It. Now, of course, that's completely gone with with chess completely getting back to normal to some degree. But um, at the time, I think that having played all those online events with Magnus, play all the chess.com events, all these different things, I was just I was very, very sharp, even if I wasn't necessarily looking looking at specific openings at the time. 
I feel like uh, the problem with older generation is that they didn't find the path to continue training, to continue finding that motivation uh, to train as well. Uh, with you, for example, you found streaming and that was huge, right? It was something to get up in the morning and work on. It's easy if you don't have that something to just uh, get lazy, as you were mentioning, also lose motivation. Well, it was a very, I mean, it's so what once, once, once in a once in a century event that happened. Um, you know, I think as chess players, we're so used to studying chess every yep. day. We're so used, and then to going that. to play. And, and like the, the reason, of course, the biggest reason you study is because you have tournaments. Like exactly. you have this tournament next month or next week, whatever it might be, and. For the top players, at least, you have a pretty general idea going forward, probably at least six months of what you're going to play. So it's very clear what you're looking forward to. And then when suddenly you don't know what's happening until who knows when, um, I think it's you just you don't know what to do with yourself. Because I think the motivation is driven from the fact that you're competing in, in various events around the world. So it, it completely changes. And for me, I mean, streaming, I mean, it, cha it changed everything, really. Like, uh, I can't express that enough that all the results I had would not have happened before because I would have been too nervous. I think, you know, if I just think about uh, this game against Levon that I played um, in, in the third Grand Prix, I, 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 was, I looked at the Berlin, I looked at the Petrov. That's pretty much all that I looked at. And even in the Petrov, I just reviewed like a couple of couple of sidelines. Um, and I had this one idea in the Berlin that I had been sitting on for a while. And that's all I did. But I know that if it was pre pre pandemic in my mind, it would have been like, OMG, like this. If I have to win this game, this is the only way I qualify for the candidates. If I don't qualify for the candidates, what exactly am I looking forward to? The only thing that matters is getting there and potentially to a world championship match. So um, like if I look at that difference, like I just relaxed, I, I did a little bit of review, nothing too crazy before that game. But pre pandemic, I would have gone way over the top and then I would have had these nerves, all the stress because it's all that matters. And so everything, yeah, everything was just wildly different because of what happened. That's an interesting point because I, I feel like at least in the candidates, like the level headedness is really important and like raw ambition, just it's important to have ambition, but raw ambition just doesn't at some point there's diminishing returns. And at some point, it's even it's even damaging to your chest. Like, I think with Ali Reza, we saw this, right? That he was, and you mentioned, he was so ambitious. And, and for example, like, you know, even with like Tamor in the candidates, mm -hmm. right? I mean, okay, he didn't, he didn't qualify or anything, but he still had a good tournament. Right. Despite having like probably no ambition at some point during the tournament, being minus mm -hmm. two and, and finishing plus one. And, um, and also you mentioned that with your game against Lev, right? That, not like pushing yourself super hard actually gave you a better result than if you had, you know, put all your like nervous energy into it. Right. I mean, I think that's one thing that's, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how to put it, but that's one thing that strikes me as being a little bit off in the world of chess is that you have the candidates in the world championship, which have much bigger prize funds and have much, much more of an impact than just like winning, winning, like say the, the Singfield cup, for example, like it's, it's such a different scale. And it, to me, it's a little bit, it's a little bit odd that that's the case because then, of course, everyone puts so much more pressure on themselves. It's just, it's not, and again, I don't know, actually, probably someone can run stats, but I do feel like in the candidates, people play much worse than they would play just in a normal top-level event because, again, there's a, it's a winner-take-all. Top player makes it to World Championship match. If you make that match, you'll make, make like half a million or a million dollars. And because of that, it's just like it changes. It doesn't feel like it necessarily determines who the best player is. It determines who is basically, who has the best nerves, who's like able to control it the best under pressure. And I think for me, I actually learned that when I played the 2016 candidates. Um, 
I, I, I've, I've never really talked about like the training or anything that went into it, but I worked with Peter Aleko before that event, which is why I made this uh, very big mistake of playing the uh, Queen's Indian, which people will see. I mean, I lost these two terrible games. There's a famous one to Karyak, and then, of course, the one to Love as well. And um, I was like looking at chess like 10 hours a day, looking at all these different openings, but right up until literally the day before the event and even even during the event, looking like five, six hours. And I felt that doing that, I mean, it, it harmed my chances uh, ir irretrievably. I mean, there was no chance of me ever winning that event um, from the get go. And so like when I when I approached this candidates, I was just like I was very chill about it. It's like, OK, I'm going to go. I'm going to play, try to have a good result. But it had I mean, it really had nothing to do with the, the actual chess. It's just. I, I was able to control my nerves, sure. I mean, I got lucky against you. You walked into this line that I'd looked at for a couple hours the night before. But for the most part, um, I mean, I just felt like I was, I was very controlled. Now, the game against Ding, I mean, it kind of, I wouldn't say that it was like nerves necessarily crept in. It was more like I just wanted the whole thing to be over because, um, of course, I didn't know at the time that Magnus wasn't going to play the match. Uh, so it's just like at some point in that late middle game, I just wanted the whole event to be over. It's like, okay, I just I'd want to get out of here. And so I was moving too quickly and all these other things. Um, but definitely, like for me the, in, the, in the candidates, it, just having had that experience and just approaching it from a completely different way, it, it, it made a world of difference. And I think, um, you know, it's one thing, you know, when I when I go back to streaming for, but I think a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of people who watch my streams and I think that I'm just making up all this different stuff. Like, okay, I'm just telling these stories about magas that don't exist or all these different things when, when in fact, like 95% of them are obviously true and they, they've happened. Um, you know, I, I think that's the thing. Like, I, I spoke about it, and I, I feel like for Ali Reza, if he'd actually listened to my streams um, before the candidates, he would have been in a much better place mentally um, towards approach. So I basically said, like, this is what I did in 2016. Probably Ali Reza, he's going to do exactly what he did, which is, you know, take nine months off, big mistake, because then, then you have too much time on your hands to think about it. And again, you start thinking about, like, okay, I win this tournament, I play the match, I'm playing Magnus. Like, you think about the money, the fame, all these, all these different things that go in hand in hand with it. Um, in terms of your chess career and and then of course you just you can't keep it together and that's that's what it seemed like to me happened yeah you know, ex exactly to Ali Reza's he just he couldn't he couldn't keep it together lost a couple of games sure by the end he had sort of he had realized that like it didn't matter he just was just playing and then when he's just playing he played completely fine but but again like it, you know you play you play in tournaments like the candidates and um and then you just you put too much pressure on yourself and I think streaming it's just been yeah, it's just been amazing. It just felt like he went against his nature, and maybe you did as well in 2016. Yeah, because I mean, again, at the end of the day, I, I think for me, if I look at the pre-streaming, uh, pre-streaming landscape um, for for myself, I very much like I'm looking at like what can I do to maximize everything? And of course, this does apply to streaming too. But you're looking at it as term of how do you maximize everything? And if I look at my career as a chess player. What haven't I done? I've won, you know, I've won super tournaments. I've won the U.S. championship. I haven't gotten to a world championship match. And just thinking about the implications of how that would change things, it just it became too much. It became way too much in 2016 for me to handle. Um, and I think for most people that first go to the candidates, they generally do very badly. If Ali Reza plays the candidates in two years, I mean, he might not win, but he's going to be in a much better place than he was this previous one that he played. And just because he had that experience. Um, so I, you know, I think for myself, trying to maximize these things, it's just I put too much pressure on myself, and in critical moments, I mean, I kind of, kind of cracked. Um, and but looking back, having had, having played in the candidates, the one big thing that I was always unhappy about is my result in 2016. I was always very unhappy because I felt like 
what if I what if I had been a little bit more prudent in the way I'd approach it? I hadn't let had all these stupid thoughts about like money or like playing Magnus creep in. You know, it could have been different. And I never had a chance to win. And so even though I didn't win this time around, playing the playing the way that I wanted to play, being in contention. I mean, it's it's all I could have asked for. And I mean, if I were to never play chess again, I'll, I mean, I'll have no regrets because that one regret, that one sort of doubt in my mind about whether I could make it there is gone now. Do you think Magnus would have played the match if you would have gotten second place? Um, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people and, it, and to be fair, I still have not listened to this podcast with Lex Fridman, so I, I don't know exactly what he said about it. I I will say that I'm going to take him at his word that having said that he wouldn't play, he wouldn't have. But I do think in some way I'm also right because while he said something along those lines, he did say that he would he said something like he would have he wouldn't have enjoyed making that decision. So, you know, I I'm, I think I'm partially wrong, but I still am partially right that when Magnus says like he would have been unhappy, that to me tells me that that I, I was onto something there. So you would have been able to sway him maybe. Yeah, maybe. Again, I think. I think again. You you don't. You'll. We'll, we'll never know what would have happened because because that that's a hypothetical. But the fact that he said that he would he would not have liked making that decision tells me um, that in in some way I'm right. Like I might be wrong, but I think I'm still right because he would not have he would not would not have been happy. So I feel well, like he would have he would have definitely played a match if you had won or if Ali Reza had won. Like this is because mm-hmm. they would he would right. just find it very fun. Right. Uh, but do you think like his approach in how he expressed his he expressed his feelings before the tournament and didn't make them 100% clear rather than just saying after the tournament without giving any indication before not to interfere with people's thoughts. Do you think that would have been a better approach of, of doing it? I mean, I think it really depends whether you believe Magnus or not in terms of whether he had made a decision before the event or whether he made the decision because of who won the event. And to me, based on the comments that he made, it seemed, I find it hard to believe that he had made this decision before the event. I just, I find it hard. Now, again, I haven't listened to exactly what he said on that podcast with uh, Lex Fridman, but my understanding is that he said something like the decision had been made well in advance, and then he just formally, formally made, made the decision at the end. I don't actually believe that to be true, because again, I think if I had won or Ali Reza had won, he would have played. And if I use that assumption about Magnus, I think it was, a, it was, um, uh, if, if, if I, Take him at what he said, then I think it's a mistake. If I think that it was a fluid situation and the decision he made was based on who won, I I kind of I think it's kind of okay. I don't I don't think it's great in that situation. But if he had made up his mind like he said he had six months before, I think he should have let everybody know. I think he should have let the world know. And by not letting the world know, it kind of it changed the whole dynamic of the tournament. Do you think he's going to come back if the system remains the same, if he has to go through the candidates? Do you think he's going to try to come back to the World Championship match? Um, at this point, I'm I'm fairly skeptical. I, I think it it really depends. Uh, the the notion of him playing the Canada's tournament to qualify I, somehow I don't really see him doing that again. I think the amount of work that you have to put in put in for something like that it's it's so massive that I I don't really see it. Even when he won, uh, was that 2013? I 2013, believe it was the one yeah. one in London. Like that was a very tough event. He barely won, and he did lose the final round as well. Of course. Kramnik lost uh, lost that final game too, but it was very tough, and it was not clear that he was going to make it through. And if he hadn't had a little bit of luck in that end game against Timor, where Timor misplayed it, if that's a draw, there's a good chance that he doesn't play a nod, and history is completely different. So I find it hard to believe that he's going to come back and play play in a World Championship match um, under 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 Fide, but 
We'll see. We'll see. But I, I think it's like, I would say 80-20. It's hard that. to imagine it, yeah? Because anyway, he would be trying to qualify for the same situation that he opted out of. Right. I mean, he would be playing either, let's say, Jan or, or Ding Liren. Like, you could have done that anyway. <laughs> right. That's that's true. Yeah, like What's in two years. Yeah. Exactly. You're right. So I, I, I think it's, I, I would say 80-20 that it's not going to happen. I don't think he'll come back. What's the uh, best way to dispute the world championship? What's the best system, in your opinion? I think I think something that's only classical is the only way you can really do it. I mean, I, I understand Magnus's concerns. I mean, he feels like it's too long preparation. You're gonna have like twelve draws, like a previous match, of course. Um, at the same time, having a world champion championship decided in, in rapid or blitz just doesn't feel right to me. I mean, like when, when I look back at your match against him, uh, or or even Karyakin's match for that matter, like they were they were tied after regulation. If you have a match that's tied after regulation, it to me, I think it should just keep going with like sudden death, um, something like that. Like next, next, next game that's won, that's it. Um, that's probably what I would do. I this idea of mixing rapid and blitz with classical, I don't really like because also to Fide's credit, they do have a world rapid and a world blitz championship. So if you already have those, I don't really see the need to mix the format. So probably something like maybe it's something shorter, like ten games, for example, and sudden death, something like that. But I mean, mixing the formats, I, I don't really understand the logic behind that. I do like the sudden death idea. I hadn't thought of it. Like, it does, it could lead to these endless matches. Okay, we saw, like, the most infamous endless match, right? Uh, right. Gary Gary and Karpov playing for, like, three months straight. But that was up to six wins. If you just have it, like, after ten games to the right. first win, it's very likely to be resolved relatively quickly. Right, each... or you could even you could even do like first of two wins, for example, because mm. you're going to get a lot of draws. Um, but first of two wins, something like that, or some something of that nature, um, I think is even possible. One, I think is ridiculous because you could just show up and lose the first game. But I think there are ways. There are, there are ways to keep it classical, and I I, just, I understand. I mean, the match has to end at some point. But to me, the the idea of like you drawing twelve games of classical, showing that you're completely equal, and then then I mean, basically losing the match because of one one wrong king move in that first working yeah. pawn end game is just I find that a little bit absurd. What about the qualification process to uh, the World Championship match? The candidates or just the champion chooses whoever he wants to play against, like in boxing? Yeah, I mean, I think the candidates is a good... I mean, the candidates, I like it, but again, it's one event. I feel like... I, I don't feel like the best player always wins. In fact, I think most of the time the best player doesn't win. Uh, it's just who has the best nerves. Um, so... I want to say that I feel like something along the lines of like two tournaments or maybe three tournaments, something like similar to like the Grand Chester, but having that be like a candidate makes more sense to me than it just being one event. I feel like one event doesn't, I mean, as we've seen, doesn't really determine who the best player is. And I feel like nerves and all these other extraneous factors, they, they come into play in a way that you, you don't have uh, if you have two or three events. I think it's just completely different. So probably something like that uh, to me would, would be better. Something like the Grand Chester, but like Grand Chester candidates. Like speaking of this, because this is these are all things that go back in history. Do you feel like this is a bit antiquated, and like online chess is the future? Because I, I've spoken to people who think over the board chess, it's going to be phased out because online chess has the biggest following, and uh, and the most viewership and everything. Um, do you mean like do you mean like world championship, or you just mean over the board? Just everything, everything. Um. That's a very, very good question. I think one of the problems that you have in the chess world right now is that we're very reliant on specific individuals who fund events. You do not have corporate sponsorship for over-the-board tournaments. Now, that's, that is a big issue, and that is something that online chess has in a different way because at the end of the day, in the modern world we live in, it's all about eyeballs, the viewership, and 
you know, on my channel, if I can show that I have 10, 20,000, whatever that number of concurrent viewership is, I will be able to get a sponsor no matter what, um, full stop. Whereas over the board, you don't really have those same kind of metrics that you can show in a way that sponsors understand. And so because of that, we're relying on individuals. And I think unless there's some way um, to get corporations involved or expand the viewership to where over the board tournaments are consistently covered in a different, different way, like on TV, for example, I find it hard to believe that at some point we're not going to run out of sponsors for events and we're not just going to have stuff online uh, in the long run. But right now, I, I will say one thing that's very, um, very, a very good sign for over the board chess is one thing when you see a lot of these streamers who are playing over the board tournaments, whether it's myself, whether it's the Botez sisters, whether it's the chess, chess bras. Um, you see that their viewers want to watch that. They have higher viewership than you have for just normal streams um, because it's like, I, I feel like there's something that's just, it's very weird. You see them play online, then you actually see them in person. Viewers, viewers like that. They really do like that. That's a very big hit. So I am optimistic from that standpoint that perhaps um, that perhaps there's some way to, to generate more interest to get more sponsors. But I do have to say that at the moment, it seems like we're very reliant. I mean, there are two, two sponsors in particular. You have Rex Sinkfield and you have Isai Scheinberg. Um, those are probably the two people right now who are frankly holding up top level chess, I would say. Um, and if they were to uh, to vanish or disappear overnight, I think uh, top level chess would be in very, very bad shape. So it's very, it's very uh, scary. Um, and I think, you know, in the long term, there has to be some way to bring in corporate sponsors or else over the board will eventually, I mean, I don't think it will necessarily die out completely, but it won't be, it won't be something that people are interested in. I think we have a uh, super bet nowadays coming from mm -hmm. uh, Romania, right. which are trying to pump some money in, 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 into the grand chess tour. So I think that's definitely a good, uh, good thing, not relying on only one sponsor, mm -hmm. obviously. That's pretty much the only corporation. Like, chess has traditionally had a problem with this. I mean, every once in a while you have like an Intel or an IBM that gets involved in chess. But they seem very dedicated. Yeah, yeah that's true. Superbet does seem well, quite... I mean, also, though, you, you, need, you do need the... I, I have to... I cannot stress this enough. This is not to take a shot at someone. But you do... The players do have to understand that when you have these sponsors, there are a lot of... There are a lot of these little things that they ask. And, of course, it's very annoying as players who just want to play the chess and everything. But you have to understand that they are the people supporting it. And you do have to keep them happy. Because at the end of the day, the, yeah. the whole Intel... I mean, the Intels and the IBMs, they, they were interested in chess. But unfortunately, um, the top chesslers of the day kind of... Kind Are we going to name of, any yeah. specific name? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, kind of, yeah, kind of pissed them off, to put it mildly. And unfortunately, they, they retreated. And they're, they're, as far as I know, they're gone forever. They have no interest in doing anything with chess again. Yeah, well, at some point, they, they got interested a little bit again. But it, it's always like one or two people mm -hmm. in the company, and then they move to a different division or something, and it just right. gets dropped. Exactly. It's always some very small thing. It never goes like straight to the top where, where you have real... Mm -hmm. It's it's like also there are, there are other examples too. So like in Seattle, there there was this time period when there was America's Foundation for Chess, and they they were very big. They sponsored the U.S. Championship, U.S. Women's Championship. Um, they were doing a lot of scholastic programs, which they still do, fortunately. Um, but basically, the the main the main person driving driving all of that at a certain point, he got dismayed by some of the things that were going on in the chess world, and he just stopped funding it. And then just like that, the U.S. Championship and the U.S. Women's Championship uh, sort of faded into obscurity until Rex came along. I mean, there, there are many examples from the 90s as well. Um, so it, it is a, it is a very serious problem. And you I mean, hopefully at some point we learn we learn from from the past. Staying with the World Chess Championship just for a second in a parallel universe, you qualify for a World Championship match and you're facing Magnus. Mm -hmm. How does that match play out? Um. <laughs> 
I, you know, I really, I really don't know because, it, because, and this is, again, I have to say this is the best part about being a streamer and, and having that as my main job, I can say all these things that I, I would never say in the past. Um, but for the candidates, I did preparation, but it was not like I'm looking at the Berlin nonstop. In fact, I mean, I'll, I'll tell a story. So like I lost the game to Timor in this, uh, this, this, this whole night BD two a four, a four Spanish. And, and like, I remember looking at this very briefly in, in Colorado as far as doing my training camp. And we looked at it for maybe like 10 minutes, looked at some of these, some of these other orders like queen e2, queen c2, h3. And we didn't look at this very obvious order that he played in the game. And I just looked at it. We looked at it for like 20 minutes and that was it. And it's like, okay, this is, this isn't much. And then you move on to something else. So I don't know. I mean, in my mind, I feel like if I, if, if I did that in any opening in a world championship match, that would be, I, I would probably get punished for that in, in a different way than, than in the candidates. Um, so I probably would study a lot more. Again, I don't really know how it would go because I feel like with Magnus, I, I, I feel that what I'm able to do against other players is somehow what Magnus does against everybody. And then when I try to do against Magnus, it just doesn't work. And so I feel like I need to get a high volume of games. And I feel like in the Meltwater tournament, Towards the end, the reason I did so well against him in the grand finals because I'd been playing him every month nonstop for like five, six months. And so getting familiar with his style really helped me. But then like there are these long periods where I just don't play against him and I just sort of revert to figuring out what I think works against other players. And then when I do it against Magnus, I get into some end game and he, he just cheeses me nonstop. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I think if I was really serious about it and having the mindset that I have now, I, I would do a lot better. But it's... You won't, won't, we'll never know, most likely. Speaking of that match, you, you played 24 games. Is that correct against Magnus in, at the end of 2020? I think it was like um, seven was, matches. Yeah, seven four matches games. of four. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that was like super close. That was going down to the wire. Was that like very motivating or get, did it build your confidence or the fact that you were close but didn't quite make it at the end? Was that very disappointing? Um, I mean, it was very disappointing that I lost this uh, second blitz game in the English. I mean, it was very disappointing because, like, I looked at the line, I got the right position, and then at that one critical moment, I didn't play the right line. Um, so it was very disheartening in a way. But I think the thing is, throughout the tour, just being competitive with him, I felt good. I mean, the problem is, like, traditionally when I play him, it's like, in the last probably five, six years, I play him like every three months or something. It's usually like one game, two games max. So it's like you play the one game. If I play him the one game with white, I get some chances, but I miss something as draw. It's okay. It's a draw. But then of course I get black against him three months later. I lose the game. There's no, there's no momentum. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, there's no like carryover. And I, I really do feel like when I played him um, in the Lindoris Abbey event specifically where I, I beat him in, um, in the Armageddon of that, of that match, it really gave me confidence in the final. I just felt like I was playing good chess throughout. I just, I felt like I wasn't playing against Magus. I felt like there was none of the psychological stuff that normally is going on when I play against him. So, I mean, if I can get the volume of games, I feel like I have chances, but if I don't get that volume, I feel like somehow I revert to doing the stuff that I do against everybody else. And it's not good enough against him. We touched upon an interesting subject um, a few minutes ago about players at around the 2700 level, especially American players. We were discussing Sevian, Jeffrey Shong, uh, Sam Shanklin comes to mind as well. And they all have very different approaches as to what tournaments they play. I remember Jeffrey was playing a lot of open tournaments. I was seeing him in these random events in Texas, and he was already 2,700. Sevian, not so much. Shanklin, not at all. What is uh, the best way to make that push from 27 to like 2,750, where you surely will get some invitations, but at 2,700, you don't get as many invitations in in the big yeah, tournaments. I mean, the best way is to like be the number one U.S. player, or the number one Italian player. That's the best <laughs> way. Just get the invitations by being the number one player in your country. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think it's it's very tough. Uh, certainly for the American players, it's very hard because players look because the organizers look at the rating list and they generally invite by uh, from from the highest going down the list. Um, you know, I think uh, everybody has a different style. I think when I look at someone like Seven, he's a player who strikes me as somebody who could just mow down a bunch of 2600s. His, his opening repertoire, he tends to play a lot of very sharp, dynamic lines. Um, Sam, I feel, is a little bit too... Um, He's too professional. I think he's somebody who's worked a lot with other top players. He's, he's worked with me. He's worked with Magnus. And what works at the top level is sort of being stable and picking off players here or there in preparation. Uh, the 2700 level, sort of getting to 2750, I think it's all about being able to beat like the 2600s, 2650s uh, more consistently than, than you draw them. So I feel like somehow you have to have the, that style of, of a player like Sevian or, or like using a current junior, somebody like Noterbeck. You really have to have that style um, in order to keep the rating going and not start like stabilizing uh, before you get there. And I feel like for Shankland, he, he sort of his repertoire is too stable. He's going to do well in, in closed tournaments, but if he plays the open events, he's just going to draw too many 2600s. He's going to lose points here or there, and then he's never going to get 2750. So I think you sort of have to be, in, unless you have, um, unless you're able to just get those invites, the elite events, you have to be able to to win the open tournaments. You have to have that style. Even Wesley So, for example, he just got to 2700 off of winning opens. His style was very, very different from the style that he plays today. And I think it was very similar to you as well. Yeah, you were playing a lot when you were making yeah. that push. Yeah, I was playing a huge amount, like 120 games a year or something like that. And um, yeah, I mean, I think the practice is really good. Actually, it's interesting with like Sam or Sevian, because I, I mean, all these players are very, very close in terms of their general quality of play. But I feel like he does have those like clutch moments. He's very good in those like clutch moments. And I feel like, like for example, Sam Shanklin, he's, he's an amazing player. But in those like clutch last second decisions when you have like a 50-50 choice and sometimes and, like it's, it's happened to all of us, right? Where you you feel like one move is, is really important, the other move, but you're not sure which one is, is going to be right. And then some players just make the right move and some players make the wrong move and sort, sort of like by instinct. Right. And I feel like Sevian, he does have those instincts and those like crucial last second decisions. He does do that well, very well. Yeah, I mean, from my experience playing, like we're talking about Shanklin, Zhang, and Sevian specifically, what I would say is Sevian is the only player who, like, he will blow me off the board here or there. Like, I feel like whenever I play Shanklin, I never really am afraid of, like, losing the game. I, I mean, I'll, I'll draw plenty of games. You know, if I do something stupid like I did in the Rapid and Blitz, of course, I'll get punished. But generally, I don't feel like I'm, I'm going to lose games to him. And the same applies to Jeffrey as well. I feel like when I play them... There are never these moments where I feel like they just like they can just blow me off the board once they get that advantage. And from playing Sevian in like the, the Rapid Chess Championship, playing him in Blitz in the past, uh, there are moments that I feel like if I do something wrong, he's just going to kill me. He's just going to blow me completely off the board. So, yeah, maybe maybe yeah, it's intuition just being being really clutch at certain moments. Um, that that is a difference. I mean, I can't like again. I don't think there's any huge difference between someone who's like twenty seven thirty and somebody who's like twenty seven hundred. I think it's just. It's making like slightly better decisions, controlling the risk a little bit more, so that you don't you don't end up in like losing positions as often or, or positions that where you can lose. Uh, so it's very very minimal though. With Jeffrey, I, I sometimes feel like he does have those things where he just blows someone off the board, where he can like play a pretty much flawless game. I mean, and and he does have that experience like playing matches against top players and occasionally beating top players in matches. Um, but yeah, maybe with like with Sam Shankland. He, he's already so so established as like mm -hmm. a, a general like let's say top 50 player and he's so used to that role that maybe he doesn't have like the youthful optimism that the other guys the younger guys have that's true yeah 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're actually right. I mean, I feel like there were there was a time when I played Jeffrey, and I felt like that was true maybe like two or three years ago. I, I, I remember I played him in like the last round. I think it was a title Tuesday. It was one of these anti-anti-night uh, uh, or some of these Bishop B5 check games. And I, I think I just got blown away when I when I did something wrong. That sort of made me think like, whoa, maybe maybe he does actually have that it factor. But, you know, there, there's a there's a good Twitch meme, which is uh, Pog you, um, which is like, oh, really kind of thing. And I, I will say that I feel like when I played him in recent times, I always feel like he's just he's always happy to get the draw. It doesn't matter what the position is, but I feel like he's always happy to just get that draw. And I think that that is definitely a, a big, big downside. Who's the next uh, big superstar in American chess? So you're talking about like young, really young, stars? just American players. Um, yes. Right. Young, but I mean, young you're, saying, you're young talking players. about like, like the Mishra up and coming, up, up and coming. coming. Yeah. Um, who do I think has the potential to break through? I mean, Mishra is obviously very strong at a very young age, but again, you have to be very careful because at those ages, anything can happen. They can just keep shooting up. They can also slow down completely. It could come to college. Yeah, I mean, m many different things can happen. Um, you mean someone who's going to be like 2750 or someone who I think would be like the world champion? 2750, 20, I would say top five in the world. Top five in the world. Um, I don't know if I think any of the, the current <laughs> ones are going to get to top five in the world, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel like in the next like year or so, there's probably going to be there probably going to be some. Actually, wait, no, there's some. No, there is a junior who I was very impressed by. Um, what's his name? Who does he work with? I, I remember he works with Avruch. Yeah, is the guy that works. There was with some Avruch. kid who had a really good result recently that I was very impressed by in the last like six months. Uh, I feel like he gained like a hundred. 100 points or something and something. I'm going to Google Something, that. something, yeah. But uh, was, it, was it like a U.S. junior or was it... There's some kid who's, who's USA is really, really high right now. It's like, tw it's like 25 or 25.50. I was very impressed by his games. I can't recall the name right off, but it was very impressive. So that's the guy. All right. Yeah. I, feel I mean, like if you, look at, if him, you uh, look at his top <laughs> list under 18, his, his name's going to be like in the top, top uh, 10 for sure. We're doing I was very game. impressed by his games. We need a Jamie, like in a Joe Rogan experience. <laughs> Google it, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> but he's like, he's in the top 10 in, in like under 18, I think for sure at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So that's the one. Well, Hikaru, um, any questions you have for us? Questions for you guys? Um, I, I guess if I, if I ask a question, like, how are you enjoying this process of, of creating a podcast? Because for me, all of this sort of content creation at this point, like it's, I've been there, done that. So like, sometimes like, I'm curious, like, how are you guys enjoying it? Like, are you, are you enjoying it at all? Or are you not enjoying it? Is it like more work than you thought? It's, it's definitely a lot of work, but we really enjoy also hearing from people who like you've given a million interviews and Yasser has given a million interviews, but sometimes you get some like little nuggets that haven't been said before or some story from you know from someone's past and and we heard about your childhood I, I don't think you've spoken so much about that in the past um so yeah hearing a lot of stories from different chess players is very interesting uh and yeah we hope that it's you know it's also a good product for people yeah no i, th I think i mean from what i've heard at least people are enjoying and i I have to say, like, I, I at times, I mean, I'm a little envious when I like see people. You, you get to those like 1,000, 1,000 mm. uh, subscribers. You get monetized. All these things, like being at the start of that journey. Like sometimes, sometimes I miss that because there's 
there's really nothing there's no like downside to it as long as you go into it with like the right motivation you're it's not just like you're not thinking okay well i started i'm gonna have like a hundred thousand subscribers in like one month something like that if you go into the right like motivations and you're not expecting that success i mean just i i wish sometimes i could go back to those days because everything was in some ways more fun when you the unknown of of what you're doing as opposed to being more about like maintaining everything i think that's a big one the unknown because for me uh i get bored extremely easily and i always try to find a way to um, well diversify my portfolio and learn new things and uh, just putting the podcast together from a technical perspective you're learning so many uh, new things uh, learning how to use uh, YouTube learning how to use uh, Spotify as a content creator for example there's so many uh, little nuggets that kind of fuel that creativity and that yeah, basically you know, I drives also, me I guess you know I was all, also this didn't come up but I, I would say one of the things like with streaming for me is I do feel like based off the experience I've had I think I could probably work in probably three or four other fields uh because of those experiences um and that's something that I could not have done before so I I, I would say that I think that's that's a huge huge beneficial thing for down the road because even if something like the podcast doesn't lead anywhere you still gain valuable skills for potentially other other careers as well before we sign off any uh anything else you want to add any thoughts uh, words for your fans out there what's next for you hikaru um you know i just i just keep going at it every day trying to create a product that people like um you know I, i'm really proud that i'm able to do so much coverage of events whether i plan it or whether i'm just doing commentary and i think all this stuff is very very good for the chess world in the long term and i'm just really glad that everybody enjoys it i mean at the end of the day uh, the, the fans are the ones who basically make or break you and uh it's just it's it's amazing to see there's so much support both for myself but also honestly for the entire chess community both uh in, in real life and also online. You know, I think when I look back at it, I think none of us, whether it's myself, whether it's uh, people like the chess bras or, or the Botezes, I, I don't think any of, any of us could have imagined where it's all gone. And, and I'm hopeful that even, even for top players now, there's, there's more publicity, even, even for people like Fabiano. I think, uh, you know, just, I, I think I speak for everyone, actually, when we talk about your commentary you did on the World Championship match that was like really, really good. A lot of people oh, really you. enjoyed it. Appreciate and um, it's, it's just great to see that, that uh, chess is, is doing so well. Well, Hikaru, thanks a lot for joining us and I'm sure we'll hopefully see you again on the pod. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Hikaru.